0: Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the freedom trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 204, Peace in Boston After the Civil War. Hi, I'm Jake. Since I talked about Boston's 1851 Railroad Jubilee last week, which was an enormous celebration at a time when the nation seemed to be in the midst of a rush toward civil war, I thought this week it might be fun to talk about another enormous jubilee in Boston. The Grand Peace Jubilee was held in Boston in 1869, when the Civil War was still a raw wound on the American psyche. Through a musical spectacular unlike anything the world had ever seen, composer Patrick Gilmore hoped to bind the country together and help it heal. And if he just so happened to get rich in the process, well, that would just be icing on the cake. After the Peace Jubilee, I'll take a look at another peacetime memory of the Civil War in Boston. In 1903, after the pain of the Civil War had dulled somewhat, Boston gathered at what's now the General Hooker entrance to the State House to dedicate a statue to the highest-ranking general to come from Massachusetts during the Civil War. But before we talk about celebrations of peace in Boston, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is a series of articles about the history of Syrian-Americans and Syrian restaurants in Boston, from the 1880s to the present day. You may remember that almost exactly a year ago, we featured an excellent series of articles by The Passionate Foodie, a.k.a. Richard Offrey, about the history of Chinatown and Chinese restaurants in Boston. Offrey's back this month with another series of three, at least so far, articles. The series starts with a wave of Syrian immigration to Boston in the 1880s, with the new Little Syria springing up around what's now Pingon Alley, off Essex Street in Chinatown. From the first mentions of a Syrian restaurant in the press in 1899, Offrey walks through the menu offerings of a 19th century Syrian-American restaurant, from kube to yabrak to ice cream. He uses the rise of Syrian restaurants to follow the growth of the local Syrian-American population and the size of Little Syria. After discussing the Syrian restaurant scene through the 1920s, the next article dives into the history of one specific restaurant. The long-shuttered Sahara restaurant in the South End originally opened in 1965 and, for somewhat murky reasons, closed again in 1972. Amazingly, the sign has remained up over the door ever since, and this same family has owned the building since at least the early 1970s, and maybe since the restaurant originally opened. Finally, the third article discusses a Hudson Street restaurant called The Nile. When it was opened from the late 1930s through the late 1960s, it was referred to as the most famous Syrian restaurant this side of the pyramids, at least in their own marketing materials. As Offrey points out in the article, it's a bit odd that they chose to name their restaurant after the Nile River, and to refer to the pyramids in their marketing, because neither of those things existed in Syria. However, during the era when the restaurant opened, Egypt was about the closest reference most Americans had for the Middle East. So the Salem family who owned the joint just rolled with it. At first, they catered to the 16,000 or so Syrian immigrants who lived in Boston in the 1930s and 40s. But the business expanded as word of their delicious lamb skewers and Lubia stew spread among Yankee Boston. Head chef Deeb George Salem was an expert pastry chef, and he may have been responsible for introducing baklava to the Boston palate. Using his typical style of mining newspaper databases and examining old menus, Richard Offrey traces the rising popularity of the restaurant through its increasing nightly capacity as well as the string of celebrity guests, including movie stars, the Kennedys, and the Saudi royal family. He also weaves in details of how the Arab-Israeli conflict affected staff at the restaurant, how urban renewal in Boston impacted the location of the restaurant, and its eventual decline in bankruptcy. It's been a few weeks, so I'm not really sure if there are any more installments of the series forthcoming. Check out the show notes for links to read all three, and I'll let you know there if he writes any more. And for the upcoming event this week, I'm featuring a lunchtime talk on October 1st from the Mass Historical Society that's related to one of our past episodes. You may recall that in episode 132, we described how, in 1745, a volunteer army of Massachusetts militia, through good leadership, gallant conduct, and sheer dumb luck, managed to defeat the French fortress Louisbourg, the strongest fortress in North America at the time. While our show talked a bit about the thought process behind Royal Governor William Shirley's decision to besiege the fortress, we focused more on the tactics of the battlefield and the results of the victory. In the talk, Rule Britannia, Imperial Patriots in the Siege of Louisbourg of 1745, Amy Watson of USC will focus on the men who joined the siege and their political motivations. Here's how the MHS describes the event. In 1745, a group of New England volunteers who called themselves Patriots launched an expedition against the French fortress of Louisbourg in present day Nova Scotia. Who were these Patriots? What did they want with Louisbourg? And what can this incident tell us about British imperial politics in the mid 18th century? This expedition reveals that the British Empire was dividing on sharp partisan lines in the 1740s laying the groundwork for the revolutionary decades to come. If you'll allow me some shameless self-promotion, I also have a couple of events coming up in the next few weeks. First of all, you can see me give a talk about the Lost Tunnels of the North End for the Old North Church Historic Site on Wednesday, October 7th at 7pm. It'll be a lot like the podcast, except you'll be able to see me, and see my slides, and you won't have to consult the show notes for the visual aids I want to share and I won't be able to edit out all my embarrassing ums and ahs and awkward pauses. Here's how Old North describes the event. If you've ever taken a walking tour of Boston's North End, or if you've talked to the old-timers in the neighborhood, you've probably heard stories about the network of so-called secret pirate tunnels or smugglers' tunnels that connects the wharves to the basements of houses, Old North Church, and even crypts in copse Hill Burying Ground. Sometimes the tunnels are attributed to a Captain Grouchy, who's often called a pirate or a smuggler, and who's portrayed as a shadowy figure. The legends of pirate tunnels in the North End were inspired by a few subterranean discoveries in the late 1800s, but the fantastic details and stories told by tour guides and popular authors are just that, fantasy. However, there is truth underlying the legends, and there are tunnels underlying the streets of the North End. And finally, I want to promote the Boston Preservation Awards, which are coming up on October 15th. One of the few bright spots in this pandemic season is that the Boston Preservation Alliance will hold their award ceremony online this year, and it will be open to everyone. That means that you can hang out and watch as Hub History wins a Preservation Award in the Advocacy Project category. Here's what the Alliance said about us. Boston has always been a city built on history. Museums, iconic buildings, and monuments are an essential part of the city's self-definition and tourism draw. Today more than ever, that history spreads beyond physical places. The Hub History Podcast tells the stories of Boston's history through a medium that has surged in popularity. The talented duo that produces the podcast brings Boston history alive by making the past accessible and relevant to a wide audience, far beyond the balance of familiar sites the means to engage people with the history of Boston have grown dramatically. And the Hub History Podcast is a wonderful way to expand the connection of the broader public to our past, says Greg Geyer, Executive Director of the Boston Preservation Alliance. The more people who are informed and enthusiastically connected to the stories of the places and people of Boston, the more engagement we have with the desire to preserve these places for future generations. To understand a historic place and the events that happened there is to recognize its value and its connections to lessons valuable to us today. The funny thing about these awards is that we're being honored alongside mostly buildings and the architects and developers of those buildings. However, some of our fellow honorees are sites we've podcasted about in the past. For example, Graves Light in the Outer Harbor is being honored for its innovative conversion into a weekend home. We talked about Graves Light in our episodes about the Zoo Shipwreck, which sank after hitting an uncharted rock near Graves Light, as well as the wreck of the Mary O'Hara, which also sank nearby. North Square is being honored for a complex renovation to make it more accessible and informative for locals and tourists alike. And of course, we talk about North Square whenever its famous residents, Cotton Mather, Thomas Hutchinson, or Paul Revere, come up on the show. In our show about the Sack of the Ursuline Convent, we even talked about the Cathedral of the Holy Cross, which will be honored for a subtle renovation to modernize the church without changing its character. One thing that we have that the other honorees don't have is a fan base. We're asking all our listeners to vote for us as the Preservation Awards fan favorite. Just go to bostonpreservation.org fan favorite or look for the link in this week's show notes. And of course, each unique email address can vote once each day, so please vote early and often, and help us take home a second award. We'll have the links you need to register for any of this week's upcoming events, self-promotional or otherwise, in the show notes. We'll also link to Richard Offrey's three-part series on Syrian immigration and Syrian restaurants in Boston. For details, just go to hubhistory.com slash 204. Before I move on with the show, I just want to take a moment to thank everyone who supports Hub History on Patreon. These are the folks who contribute $2, $5, or even $10 a month to help us offset the cost of making the podcast. Usually, I'll tell you about our monthly expenses, but this week, one of the expenses you're helping us offset is the cost of a new hard drive. After I edited last week's show, about the Railroad Jubilee and I tried to export the final MP3 to upload to our media host, I couldn't, because my laptop's drive was entirely full. Without really paying attention, I had ended up with almost 250 gigs of podcast audio on my laptop. So along with web hosting, podcast media hosting, transcription, the other fixed costs I always mention, this time around you're helping us out with some extra storage, too. Just go to patreon.com hubhistory, or visit hubhistory.com and click on the Support Us link. Thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. And now it's time for this week's main topic. First up this week is the story of an eccentric entrepreneur and musical visionary who built one of the largest buildings in 19th century Boston, indeed one of the largest buildings in the world at the time. It was a concert hall with twice the capacity of the modern TD Garden, and it was built to house the largest musical spectacular that the world had ever seen up to that time. It was the Boston Coliseum, built to house the Grand National Peace Jubilee, celebrating the end of America's Civil War. This segment originally aired as Episode 102 in October 2018.
1: In the 1850s and 60s, Boston undertook an unprecedented infrastructure project. We first created an industrial lagoon out of the tidal back bay, then decided to fill in the increasingly polluted lagoon and create a new residential neighborhood. As the tidy street grid was laid out, the streets were filled with sand and gravel to a level of 18 feet above low tide in Boston Harbor. Since the homes that would be built between these streets would all need cellars, the building lots were left at a lower level, filled to 12 feet above the low tide line. When we used to give tours of the Back Bay, we'd pause at one of the few spots in the neighborhood where you can still see the difference between the level of the streets and the house lots. To illustrate what it would have looked like at the time, we used a picture that was taken just outside Copley Square in 1869 or 70. It shows the high streets and low building lots in a waffle pattern. Every once in a while, one of our guests would point to the giant building in the background of the photo and ask what it was. So, what was it? It was the Boston Coliseum, otherwise known as Jubilee Hall or the Temple of Peace. When it was built in 1869, it was one of the largest buildings in the world. The Coliseum was enormous, a wooden building with plentiful windows. From a distance, it would have looked like a long, low rectangular building with a gently pitched roof. Up close, you would realize that the scale of the building prevents it from being considered low. It was over a football field wide and almost two football fields long, 350 by 550 feet. Within its walls, four and a half acres of land were enclosed. That low, gently sloping roof actually soared to a peak of 120 feet above the ground. Depending on which source you believe, Construction took somewhere between 2 and 3 million board feet of lumber, between 28 and 40 tons of nails, and 25,000 feet of gas pipe. There were 144 windows, 48 water closets, 12 grand stairways, and the whole thing was topped off by 7,500 pounds of paint. The end product was a vast concert hall that could seat up to 50,000 people. For comparison, the concert capacity of the TD Garden is just under 20,000. This enormous edifice stood on land that was newly filled in the back bay and not yet auctioned off as building lots. It was built for a grand national peace jubilee held in June of 1869.
0: The organizer and conductor of the jubilee, the projector as he called himself, recalls what it was like at the moment that huge hall burst forth in song from the mouths and instruments of an unprecedented musical assemblage. The first peal of the organ was the signal to the chorus and orchestra to prepare. The 10,000 singers arose, and the 1,000 musicians placed their instruments in position. All eyes were now directed to the uplifted baton. Chorus, organ, and orchestra were to come in fortissimo at its very first move. For a moment, all seemed hushed into breathless silence. Then, in the name of God, the wand came down, and the grandest volume of song that ever filled human ear rolled like a sea of sound through the immense building. Grander and grander came wave after wave, now loud as the roar of the ocean, now soft as the murmuring stream. Oh, how beautiful, how pure, how heavenly! What sublime chords, what ravishing harmonies! That's right, for the first piece, which was the hymn we now know as A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the projector was conducting a 10,000-voice choir backed by an orchestra of 1,000 instruments. The overture from the Wagner, or, for our listener Peter's sake, Wagner opera Tannhäuser followed, backed by a mere 600 musicians. Then came two pieces by Mozart, before 2,500 basses sang the Star-Spangled Banner with the full chorus of 10,000 singing the final notes together.
1: After a brief intermission, things got even more dramatic. The second act opened with a hymn of peace written for the occasion by Oliver Wendell Holmes, then the William Tell Overture, which you might better remember as the Lone Ranger theme. Sometimes in modern performances, the William Tell is punctuated by cannon fire. In the performance of the Jubilee, no such theatrics were added, yet. After pieces by Rossini and Meyerbeer, the climax was planned for a piece commonly known as the Anvil Chorus by Verdi. That's how dramatic it sounds when performed by the Berlin Philharmonic, a normal orchestra. Imagine how it must have sounded when played by 1,000 instrumentalists, sung by 10,000 vocalists, and backed by a battery of cannons, a convocation of church bells, a custom-made bass drum eight feet in diameter, the world's largest pipe organ, and a company of 100 Boston firefighters carrying sledgehammers, pounding anvils in unison. A contemporary account describes the effect. Filing in two-by-two, One hundred helmeted, red-shirted Boston firemen strode to the stage, each shouldering a blacksmith's hammer. Then, in two rows facing the auditors, they struck on cue, right, left, right, left. The cannon, in two batteries, ignited on the first beat of every measure. Electric signals sent from a small table on the stage ensured flawless synchronization, The enthusiasm of the crowd was frantic. Fans, hats, parasols, even babies were waved aloft. The firemen marched out, and back in again, to encore the entire number. That was the first night of the five-day run of the Grand Peace Jubilee, which was intended to celebrate the peace and reunification of the United States after the terrible toll taken by the Civil War. After President Grant and his entire cabinet took in the show on the second day of the Jubilee, reporters asked him what his favorite part of the concert had been. Grant replied in a loud tone that suggested that his ears were more attuned to the chaos of the battlefield than the subtleties of the concert hall, saying, I like the cannons.
0: The presence of Grant and other members of the Republican Party as well as the seemingly overt celebration of the victory of the Union in the Civil War, made the Peace Jubilee more politically controversial than you might guess. With the White South undergoing Reconstruction and being forced, for just a few short years, to share power with African Americans, things apparently didn't feel so peaceful below the Mason-Dixon line. Here's how a Democratic Party newspaper in Ohio with strong Southern sympathies put it. Peace Jubilee the mongrel party has had what they call a peace jubilee at Boston, the hub of the universe. Over a 100,000 people were called there to hear and see. It is said that there was no limit to the attractions. Grant was there, and eat fish with his imperial friends. Hundreds of thousands of dollars were squandered in getting up the notorious humbug, the peace jubilee. They shouted, sang, and made huge noises with anvils, cannon, and musical instruments, all in a mockery of the woes of the nation at this time. Boston, during their peace jubilee, spit upon the miseries of the people of the South and upon those of other parts of this once happy country. Get up a peace jubilee when there is no peace. A peace jubilee when the nation is smarting under the most unrelenting war upon its best interests, which wicked rulers ever perpetrated in the history of despotisms since the world began. Yes, a peace jubilee in New England, whose heel is today on the neck of the South, trying to crush out its manhood, and endeavoring to degrade it by foisting its own Negroes upon the white people as equals. Nine millions of white impoverished into starvation, their political rights wrested from them, and their own ignorant slaves made rulers over them. As a side note, if you think that was crude, just know that we cleaned up the worst of the racist language that appeared in this front-page editorial. But just who was this mysterious projector who had dreamed up the largest musical spectacular the world had ever seen? Patrick Sarsfield Gilmore was born in Ireland on Christmas Day in 1829. By the age of 16, he was playing cornet part time in a band while working in a brewery in Athlone. At 18, he joined the military and served in Canada for a year, performing with the military band. When his service was over, he emigrated to Boston which was known as one of the centers of musical life in the U.S. at that time. He led a series of increasingly prestigious concert bands before volunteering with the 24th Massachusetts Regiment for service in the Civil War. Before the war was over, he'd have a chance to put on a musical spectacular that gives us a taste of what was yet to come. He was summoned to New Orleans, where the leader of the occupying Union forces asked him to lead the festivities as an unpopular, anti-slavery Republican governor was installed as described by Dr. Stephen L. Rhodes in A History of the Wind Band. On March 4, 1864, at the request of General Banks, Gilmore oversaw the music celebrating the inauguration of Governor Michael Hahn. For the event, Gilmore created a grand national band consisting of 500 army bandsmen plus additional drum and bugle players. He also organized a chorus of 5,000 children. In addition to many other patriotic tunes during the last number, Hail Columbia, Gilmore shot off 36 cannon by electric buttons from the podium. As the cannon fired methodically in time with the beat, the bells from the churches and cathedrals throughout the city chimed to create a most spectacular effect. It was a sensational event, on the order of something Julian would have conceived, and undoubtedly whetted Gilmore's appetite for similar events in the future.
1: Patrick Gilmore seems to have had a taste for excess in literature to rival his desire for excess in music. His book, A History of the National Peace Jubilee, in which he describes the planning and execution of the 1869 Jubilee, runs to over 700 pages. On page 2, he describes how he was struck by the concept of the Jubilee seemingly out of the clear blue sky. In June of 1867, Mr. P.S. Gilmore was passing a few days in the city of New York, and it was at this time that the first thought of a national jubilee to commemorate the restoration of peace throughout the land flashed upon his mind. The carrying out of the idea, he well knew, would afford an opportunity for the grandest musical festival the world had ever known. The scenes with which he was then surrounded immediately lost their interest— and he became absorbed by the grandeur of his conception. The general plan of the scheme, as afterwards adopted, seemed at once to unfold itself. Indeed, had the scenes of Broadway been instantly changed by the wand of a magician, they could not have been transformed into a series of more enchanting, dissolving views than were they vividly portrayed to him like a panorama of the coming event. A vast structure rose up before him, filled with the loyal of the land, through whose lofty arches a chorus of ten thousand voices and the harmony of a thousand instruments rolled their sea of sound, accompanied by the chiming of bells and the booming of cannon, all pouring forth their praise and gratulation in loud hosannas with all the majesty and grandeur of which music seemed capable. As his imagination reveled in the scenes his thought pictured, every nerve quivered with the intensity of his delight, and he was impressed with all the fervor of religious belief that it was his special mission to carry out the sublime conception. With almost prophetic instinct, he felt at the time that it would take two years to realize the full development of this inspiring vision, and in some degree, The final success of the Jubilee may be attributed to the fact that he kept secret these first impressions of the project.
0: By 1869, Gilmore was already known for putting on large-scale concerts every year on Boston Common for the 4th of July. In an early version of the Jubilee plan, he meant to build the venue for his 1869 extravaganza right there on the Common as well. Those rumors inspired this March 1869 letter. Sir. We have read with surprise and awe your proposal to hold a peace festival on Boston Common and forward you this, our protest. We place our objections on the following grounds. First, in building a coliseum such as you describe, by building a board fence 11 feet high entirely around the Common, you would be confining the Common to a very limited space. It would naturally chafe under this restraint as it has been accustomed to roaming around at its will. Second, The four ladies and gentlemen who now occupy the position of watchers at the base of the brewer fountain should be considered. It is not using them with gentlemanly consideration to thus debar them from their view of park and Tremont streets, which is the only recreation they enjoy. This your board fence would do. We started to have some doubts about the letter with this next paragraph. Third. Serious fears are now entertained that the fountain on the frog pond would overflow with indignation at this act of tyranny and it is very evident that the frogs would suffer no small inconvenience from the danger of being bailed out with Jeff Davis. They are not generally croakers, but we think their objections in this respect are very laudable. Fourth, not only would it make bald-headed places on the grass, wear out the seats, rub the paint off the fences, and crowd the flagstaff, but such a large number of persons must necessarily carry off large quantities of gravel upon the soles of their boots these, our valid reasons, do we thus lay before you, feeling sure that they carry conviction with them. We consider the common holy ground, and the time is most assuredly coming when no one shall be allowed within its hallowed precincts. It pains our heart's core to see the thoughtless deers, as they frisk and gamble over its surface, and we considered it a just retribution that the bear, who temporarily there did dwell, destroyed one of these wicked creatures in the midst of its sin. No, oh no, not the common, anywhere else, but do not insist upon the common. We objected to new thoroughfares, free churches, horse cars, constituent water, the widening of streets, but the rash and impetuous freebooters who composed the rising generation would not listen to us. But the time is coming. The time is coming. Let us hear from you at an early day, and that you will accede to our request is the prayer of this petition. Yours respectfully, signed, a fossil. You will be cussed. You are a wretch, o fogey, o are you sane, a moldy pate, and forty nine others. If you ever listen to car talk on WBUR, that list of signatories could be taken straight out of the car talk credits. If you hadn't already figured it out, those names make it clear. The letter is satire. It was addressed to Mose Skinner in a publication that's kind of a 19th century version of The Onion.
1: That letter may be a phony, but there were similar editorials in Boston's real newspapers. One from the Boston Daily Advertiser on January 19th, 1869, reads just like more recent objections to the plan to build an arena for beach volleyball on the Common if Boston had been forced to host the 2024 Olympic Games. Earnestly concurring as we do in the general hope that the project for a national peace festival next June may move steadily and prosperously onto a complete success, we must endorse with emphasis the suggestion already made in our columns that the common is not the proper place for the contemplated Colosseum. The common is an inheritance needing to be guarded with the most constant and the most jealous care improvement assaults it on one side, while enterprises intrinsically worthy of the hardiest support threaten it on the other. The citizen who appreciates the full value of the treasure which the wisdom of our fathers left us, a treasure for which New York or Chicago would give millions were it attainable, has to be constantly in arms against the insidious attacks of projects like these. And now that the integrity of the common as a common is menaced by an enterprise which otherwise demands all his public-spirited assistance, he must redouble his wariness and fortify his conservatism with new resolution. We need hardly urge any further argument then that the rule against the admission of structures of any kind to the common is inflexible and cannot be waived even upon an occasion so extraordinary as this. It may be claimed that the building proposed is only temporary. Time must be employed to build and to destroy, and the portion of the common so unlucky as to be selected will thus be taken from its public uses for an indefinite period, and left in no condition to be immediately available again. But we trust no such step will be hastily taken, and we have sufficient faith in the elastic ingenuity of the manager of the national concert to know that he will find a way to carry out his plans to victory, even if the use of the common is denied him.
0: For good or ill, Gilmore was getting news coverage, but he had no funding, and no venue for the spectacle he had imagined. A 1969 article in American Heritage magazine describes the point at which Patrick Gilmore's luck began to turn. A number of thousand-dollar pledges rolled in, principally from hotel keepers, music publishers, and others who stood to benefit directly. The school board agreed tentatively to allow 20,000 children to sing as a feature for one day only, and an ironmonger offered to furnish 100 anvils free. But this was hardly a drop in the financial bucket, and public interest remained low. Gilmore pleaded with Boston's builders to supply lumber and workmen and to wait for their pay from ticket sales, but the builders had little faith in that. Three promoters set out to sell $50,000 worth of tickets in a month for a 5% commission, but gave up in disgust after three days. Gilmore next tried to persuade each local lumber dealer to contribute a part of the building. No luck. He campaigned through the state, asking each town to send a volunteer corps of Civil War veterans to contribute one day's work. Nothing doing. But at this point, he got a big break. Boston's leading merchant, Eben D. Jordan, head of Jordan Martian Company, had been watching Gilmore with mingled admiration, wonder, and the realization that a successful jubilee would be mighty good for Boston business. Early in March. Jordan agreed to help organize the National Peace Jubilee Association and to be its treasurer. That did it. Top businessmen and bankers were quick to join the executive committee, and they agreed to underwrite expenses from their own pockets to be repaid from seat sales. The site of the Jubilee was changed from the Common to St. James Park to quiet the back bay set. As funding and construction began to come together, Gilmore was able to focus on the program. There would be a prayer by Edward Everett Hale, an opening hymn of A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, a hymn of peace to be written by Oliver Wendell Holmes, then a traditional repertoire of classical music. The climax came with Verdi's Anvil Chorus, where we opened. One account says that an audience member was so overwhelmed by the experience that he ran to the lobby and sent a cable to his wife, saying, Come immediately. We'll sacrifice anything to have you here. Nothing like it in a lifetime. The first day, the Coliseum was packed nearly to capacity for the curiosity of opening night. On the second day, dignitaries like President Grant and Senator Charles Sumner attended. On each of the three subsequent days, the crowd numbered near 20,000. Perhaps the most amazing accomplishment of the Jubilee beyond the anvil chorus of the enormous Coliseum was the fact that it made a profit. The box office brought in about $290,000, with expenses running to $283,000. The city of Boston was so grateful for the tourist business the event brought in that it threw a special benefit concert, featuring performances by many of the musicians who had played the Jubilee. It brought in about $32,000. The benefit money and the profits from the Jubilee went to Patrick Gilmore, giving him the small fortune of $39,000, which would be over $700,000 today.
1: Because the Coliseum was designed as a temporary structure, it was supposed to be torn down by November 1, 1869. But before that day came, a great gale blew through Boston on September eighth and severely damaged the building. Photos show gaping holes in the walls and most of the roof blown away. More debris fell down when Boston was shaken by a moderate earthquake on October twenty-second, and it appears that the building may have been put up for auction as salvage. In the meantime, Patrick Gilmore took his family on an extended European vacation, using some small fraction of his Jubilee earnings. They got there just in time for the outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War. While the brief war didn't have much of an effect on most Americans, Patrick Gilmore saw an opportunity, and he seized it. He came back to the U.S. proposing a new peace jubilee. This time, it would be more than a grand national peace jubilee, it would be a world peace jubilee, and everything needs to be bigger for a world jubilee. He proposed a chorus of 20,000 voices, an orchestra of 2,000 instruments, and a coliseum that would hold 100,000 people. Pretty much the 1869 Peace Jubilee times two. The new Coliseum was again built on unsold lots in the newly filled Back Bay. It faced Dartmouth Street near the corner of Yarmouth, occupying nearly exactly the footprint of today's Copley Place, which houses a Marriott Hotel and upscale shops like Neiman Marcus. You may have noticed that we didn't give an exact location for the 1869 Coliseum there are a few accounts that say that the original Colosseum was in Copley Square, where Trinity Church is now. However, most sources agree that the first Colosseum was also constructed on the same spot as the second. In fact, they say some of the remains of the original building were incorporated into the new Colosseum, when plans had to be scaled back after a structural collapse during construction. The World Peace Jubilee debuted on June 15, 1872, and was planned to run for 18 days. Along with the musical assault that Gilmore had planned, audiences were also treated to some of the best European concert bands. London's Grenadier Guards came dressed in red, gold, and bearskins. The band of Lagarde Republican came from Paris. The Prussian Kaiser sent the Kaiser Franz Regiment Band along with his household cornet quartet. Along with the bands, the famous composer Johann Strauss was convinced to come to Boston to conduct a newly composed waltz. It was probably the $20,000 fee that convinced him. Strauss also reflected on the experience of conducting Gilmore's spectacle of a musical assemblage, and he sounds less sublime than Gilmore had three years earlier. On the Musician's Tribune, there were 20,000 singers, in front of them the 2,000 members of the orchestra. A hundred assistant conductors had been placed at my disposal. I was face-to-face with a public of 40,000 Americans. Suddenly, a cannon shot rang out a gentle hint for us to start playing.
0: This new jubilee was not the runaway success that the first one was, as that 1969 American Heritage magazine article notes. Although Gilmore scored another personal triumph, this second festival, running from June 15th through July 4th, 1872, was disappointing artistically and financially. The size of the crowds fell short of expectations. So did some of the performances. Various disasters dogged the enterprise. There were instrumental troubles. The giant bass drum, 21 feet in diameter, was so huge its head would not vibrate properly. It was hung on the wall for show. The immense organ required so much pressure that the engine powering the bellows gave out. Apparently, the World Peace Jubilee was just too big to be practical, and it lacked the spontaneity and enthusiasm of the first. Nevertheless, the European bands made a big hit. They created a splendid show each day by marching in uniform formation into the Coliseum. And they sounded, many people thought, a lot better than the 26 American bands. Dr. Stephen L. Rhodes puts it more charitably, saying, The superiority of the Europeans' musicianship provided the Americans a standard for which to strive during the next decades. This second Jubilee seems to have finally satisfied Gilmore's drive to create grand musical spectacles. In his later years, he focused on creating a touring band, as described again by Dr. Rhodes. Eventually, Gilmore's band was considered without peer in America, if not the world, and engagements were plentiful. By 1880, a typical year's engagements consisted of a summer concert series at Manhattan Beach, winter concerts at Madison Square Garden, formerly Gilmore Garden, and tours during the fall and spring under the management of David Blakely. Through his nationwide tours, and he was essentially the only touring band of the time, the general populace not only enjoyed the popular music of the day, but were exposed to the music of European masters. Where else would they hear the music of Wagner, Liszt, Mendelssohn, Berlioz, Rossini, Verdi, and more? Gilmore's library had amassed 10,000 pieces, and he employed two or three men to write new arrangements for the band. It was said that the players were so accomplished that they could read many of the most difficult arrangements at sight without the need for rehearsal.
1: The Peace Jubilee had one final hurrah in Boston. The first Grand National Jubilee was a moving tribute to peace after our Civil War. And the later World Peace Jubilee was, at least on the surface, meant as a celebration of peace after the Franco Prussian War. But the 1889 Grand Anniversary Jubilee was a celebration of nothing but nostalgia, marking the 20th anniversary of the first jubilee. Here's how American music preservation describes it. This festival was to celebrate the anniversary of the National Peace Jubilee 20 years earlier, and like that one, this grand anniversary jubilee took place in June. The dates were June 5th through 9th, 1889, at the Mechanics Building in Boston. The performers included a 1,000-voice chorus from Boston choral organizations, a reunion jubilee chorus of 1,000 voices, and a children's chorus of 1,000 voices from Boston public schools. The opening concert on June 5th began with the overture to Richard Wagner's opera, Tannhäuser, by Gilmore's band and included Handel's Hallelujah Chorus, and closed with the patriotic song, My Country Tis of Thee. Patrick Gilmore's own final hurrah came on September 23, 1892. The band was on tour in St. Louis, and after directing the concert that evening, Gilmore retired to his hotel room. He died the next day. As his coffin was carried to the train, his band followed along, playing Handel's Death March in a sort of classical version of a second line.
0: Next up, we're telling the story of Hooker Day in Boston, which was originally part of episode 138, which aired last June. While it might sound like this is going to be an X-rated podcast, we're not talking about that kind of hooker. Instead, Hooker Day was a one-time holiday celebrated in Boston in 1903, to honor the highest-ranking Civil War general from the Bay State. General Joseph Fightin' Joe Hooker was briefly the commander of the main Union force called the Army of the Potomac. Forty years after his command, he was immortalized with a massive statue in front of the State House in Boston. When the statue was dedicated, the entire city celebrated a holiday that was called Hooker Day in his honor. In March of 2018, Representative Michelle M. Du Bois, the state rep for parts of Brockton, East Bridgewater, and West Bridgewater, was at the Massachusetts State House. About a month after the deadly Parkland shooting, high school students from around the state gathered at the Capitol to advocate for stronger gun control. Du Bois was with a group who were making what has to be one of the oldest jokes in the Commonwealth. She tweeted, Are you a General Hooker? Of course not. Yet the main entrance of the mass State House says otherwise. Me Too is not all about rape and harassment, but also women's dignity. A funny double entendre misrepresented as respect for a long-dead general. Now, I've usually heard this joke as some variant of, if the general hooker entrance is in the front, does that mean the specific hookers enter in the back? Apparently, high schoolers haven't developed that keen, refined sense of humor just yet. Du Bois said, I've seen teen boys tease teen girls about being general hookers waiting in line at the entrance. The name of a long-dead union general just can't compete with the more modern meaning of the word hooker. Unfortunately, the internet wasn’t kind to Representative Du Bois. She followed up her initial reaction to clarify that she wanted the state to add the general's first name to the signs, saying, "Who but a historian or a historical-minded person would connect this sign with a statue or a historical figure?" However, there was already blood in the water. With the massive white supremacist protests in Charlottesville a few months before, a huge chunk of the mouth-breathing political right somehow convinced itself that attempts to stop glorifying the cause of slavery meant that liberals intended to erase all history of the Civil War. Online commenters misconstrued Du Bois' initial statement thinking she was demanding that the statue be taken down. After all, that would fit with their muddle-headed narrative of Civil War erasure. The General Hooker entrance is meant to honor Major General Joseph Hooker, who was the only Massachusetts officer to be placed in command of the Army of the Potomac, the main Union force pursuing Robert E. Lee's army of traitors. Hooker was born in Hadley, Massachusetts, attended the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, and moved to California after the Mexican-American War. Though his family had resided here since the founding period, Hooker didn't really have ties to Massachusetts after childhood. However, he was the highest-ranking officer to come out of the Commonwealth, so he's the one who got the statue. Though he had a reputation as an aggressive combat commander, Hooker earned the name Fighting Joe by accident. A newspaper dispatch was sent for the battlefield to New York City that was supposed to say, Fighting! Joe Hooker Attacks Rebels. But in transmitting the report by Telegraph, the headline lost its punctuation, instead reading, Fighting Joe Hooker Attacks Rebels. Secessionist General Robert E. Lee seems to have had some fun with the mix-up, sarcastically calling the general Mr. F.J. Hooker. Before his command of the entire Army of the Potomac, Fighting Joe earned a reputation as a wily tactician and an aggressive and inspiring battlefield leader during the 1862 Peninsula Campaign and at Antietam, where he fought Stonewall Jackson's corps to a stalemate. After his command of the Army of the Potomac, he fought a legendary battle at Lookout Mountain near Chattanooga, Tennessee. Sometimes referred to as the Battle Above the Clouds, Lookout Mountain saw Hooker lead 3 divisions to envelop a fortified secessionist mountaintop that had seemed impregnable, driving the enemy away and taking many prisoners while suffering light casualties in his command. The victory helped to open Chattanooga as a Union stronghold in the South. Unfortunately, between those two strings of victories, Hooker was blamed for one of the most catastrophic federal defeats of the war. As the Army of the Potomac was marching toward Richmond, the secessionists turned them back. Then, Lee split his army and attacked Hooker's forces at Chancellorsville. The much smaller secessionist force managed to completely rout and humiliate Hooker's Grand Army. Then it marched north toward Pennsylvania. When Hooker then wanted to continue on toward Richmond, President Lincoln ordered him to pursue Lee instead. The two argued, and Hooker resigned in protest, probably narrowly avoiding being fired. Lee marched on to Gettysburg, and Hooker would be remembered as having allowed it. Time eventually softened America's memory of fighting Joe, and when the 30th anniversary of the war rolled around in the 1890s, people were ready to see him in a more positive light. There were commemorations of the war and its veterans throughout the anniversary period of 1891 to 1895, and more would soon follow. The monument to Robert Gould Shaw and the 54th Massachusetts Volunteers was nearing completion in 1896, and it would be dedicated the following year. During this period of warm feelings, the state legislature passed a law authorizing construction of a statue of General Joseph Hooker as Chapter 43 of the 1896 Acts and Resolves of the General Court. Resolve providing for erecting in the State House or on the State House grounds an equestrian statue in bronze of the late Major General Joseph Hooker. Resolved that there be allowed and paid out of the treasury of the commonwealth to be expended under the direction of the governor and council a sum not to exceed $50,000 for the purpose of erecting in Massachusetts an equestrian statue in bronze of the late Major General Joseph Hooker. Said statue to be placed in or near the state house on such site as the governor and council may designate. Approved March 28, 1896. The speech given by Lieutenant Governor Curtis Guild at the eventual dedication of the monument helps fill in the gaps and illustrates how the statue got created. The details of its construction and location were left by this resolve to the governor and council. On January fifth, 1898, the council of that year selected Daniel C. French and Edward C. Potter to prepare, respectively, the models of man and horse, which were later approved by the same council and by Governor Walcott. In the same year, 1898, the site for the monument was chosen and approved. The two sculptors, Daniel Chester French and Edward Clark Potter, were both Massachusetts residents, and they would both go on to wide acclaim for later projects. Edward Clark Potter was basically French's assistant, but he was considered an expert on portraying animals in his own right. A few years later, his most famous work would be the pair of pink marble lions that guard the entrance to the New York City Public Library the ones that feature in the opening shot of Ghostbusters. By the time he won the Hooker Commission, Daniel Chester French had created a statue of a Minuteman for the town of Concord, John Harvard and Cambridge, and the heavy bronze doors of the Boston Public Library. A few years later, he would design the medal that's awarded for the Pulitzer Prize, but his most famous work is in Washington, D.C. In 1920, French created the seated statue of Abraham Lincoln for the Lincoln Memorial. Seven years after its authorization, the memorial to Fighting Joe Hooker was nearing completion, and the Commonwealth and the city of Boston were getting ready to dedicate it. June 25th was chosen as the date of the unveiling, and a grand celebration was planned. A new holiday was proclaimed, and city employees were given a day off, as the May 21st, 1903 proceedings of the Boston Common Council reveal. Mr. McMahon of Ward 4 offered an order that his honor the mayor instruct the various heads of departments to grant the employees in their respective departments a holiday on June twenty fifth, 1903, Hooker Day, without loss of pay, as part of compensation for their services to the city. If Representative DuBois' teen boys and teen girls made jokes about the General Hooker entrance, imagine how much fun they would have with a holiday called Hooker Day. Of course, proclaiming a holiday for city workers didn't mean that everyone would get Hooker Day off. Governor John L. Bates issued a proclamation on June 22nd urging private employers to give their workers a holiday as well. To the citizens of Boston. On Thursday next, the Commonwealth is to dedicate a statue to commemorate the services of Major General Joseph Hooker. This monument is erected to indicate the appreciation that Massachusetts has, not only for the great commander whose name it bears, but also for the brave men who represented Massachusetts' and the cause of the Union in the Civil War. Thousands of veterans are to visit this city on that day and to join in the dedication exercises and in the parade. The State Departments will be closed. His Honor the Mayor has directed that City Hall be closed, and I hereby suggest and earnestly recommend that similar action be taken by our citizens, and that all places of business be closed, and that our people emphasize their appreciation of the services of the Union soldiers, the living and the dead, by making the day in effect a holiday, and by fitting decorations throughout the city and especially along the route of the procession. On Hooker Day Eve, the June 24th Boston Globe lays out how the people of Boston reacted to this request. Yesterday, throughout the city, representatives of various lines of business and trade held meetings to discuss the proclamation of Governor Bates, in which he requested that tomorrow be made, in effect, a public holiday owing to the large number of visitors to be in the city, and out of respect to the memory of the men in blue in an appreciation of the services they rendered the country. There was only one result to such meetings, and that was a unanimous vote to fall in line with the request of the head of the Commonwealth. So numerous were these meetings, and so general was the decision by private concerns to respect the request of the governor, that it is safe to say that few, if any, business concerns in Boston will open their doors tomorrow. So Hooker Day would become a holiday for nearly everyone in Boston. With so many people given the day off, and with tens of thousands of veterans expected to march in the parade, and hundreds of thousands of citizens expected to spectate, the city had some other preparations to make as well. On June 15th, the Boston Board of Aldermen took up the public safety and infrastructural concerns. Alderman Bowen offered an order that the Board of Police be authorized to close to travel by vehicles except police, fire, hospital, and mail wagons, the streets to be used for the Hooker Parade on June 25th, and the City Messenger is hereby requested to rope off said streets wherever necessary, and the expense to be charged to the appropriation for City Messenger Department. Chairman Doyle offered an order that his honor the mayor be requested to order City Hall and the other city buildings closed on Hooker Day, June 25th, 1903, and that he be further requested to have City Hall decorated on that day. There were also preparations to be made on the civilian side. On June 24th, the Boston Post reported on the last scramble to get ready for the next day's celebration. Already, it is predicted that the crowd which will gather in this city for tomorrow's celebration will outnumber even the immense gathering that Boston welcomed on Dewey Day a few years ago. With the coming advent of Christian scientists, as well as the School Teachers convention, it is expected to be a very difficult proposition after today to secure suitable accommodations in this city. Every lodging house in Boston is sure to reap its harvest and rates are accordingly bound to mount suddenly skyward. Meantime, the quarters of the Hooker Day Committee at the State House are besieged from morning until night by eager applicants for tomorrow's tickets. Early yesterday, a large sign was placed without the door stating that every seat for the State House stand was long since taken. This has had but little effect upon the seekers, most of whom, though, are disabled veterans or their relatives. For these, a few tickets for the post office square stand are still held in reserve. In addition to the holiday, the June 24th Boston Globe noted concerns about the weather. All that is necessary now is for Colonel Smith of the Weather Bureau to turn off the water supply and give us a little sunshine to properly brighten up the now well-washed city and it won't take long for the cheerful rays to penetrate the spirits of Bostonians and make them as radiant and enthusiastic tomorrow as the veterans can desire. As you might imagine, most of the news profiles of Fighting Joe during the lead-up to the statue's dedication focused on the Battle Above the Clouds and Hooker's other glorious victories. Just one tiny sidebar at the bottom of an inside page on the June 21st Boston Globe raised the possibility that he had gotten in over his head. It said, Good Corps Commander. Army of the Potomac, however, was said to be too heavy for him to handle. While General Hooker was very successful in handling armies of moderate size, the results of his having been placed in charge of the Army of the Potomac were not brilliant. And it is a frequent comment of his military contemporaries that he was overweighted by such a large command, though none seems to question the efficiency of that army and its confidence in him at the time he was deprived of the command of it. He suffered a serious defeat at Chancellorsville in the winter of 1863, and the consequent criticisms, together with personal grievances against the general-in-chief at Washington, Halleck, with whom Hooker was never on good terms, caused him to resign his command a few days before Gettysburg. The critical state of affairs in the Middle West about the time Hooker severed his connection with the Virginia campaign caused his dispatch to Tennessee with reinforcements known as the 20th Army Corps. With this body, he continued the fine record for intelligence and gallantry that he had enjoyed before up to the time that he had assumed the command of the Army of the Potomac. As Hooker Day approached, every hotel was booked solid and many of the military units and veterans were camped out in public parks around the city. Of course, with the rainy weather, camping out was less than comfortable and one unit found an alternative. The second cavalry, based out of Fort Ethan Allen near Colchester, Vermont, decided they didn't want to sleep in the mud in Alston's Dummy Park. Instead, they simply stayed on the rail cars that brought them into the train yard at East Watertown, bedding down next to their horses. The next morning, units streamed into downtown Boston from their various overnight accommodations. Everyone rallied on the common before dispersing to their own assembly areas to wait on the parade to begin. The state militia formed up on Commonwealth Avenue, while active-duty soldiers, sailors, and Marines fell in on Newberry. The first division of the Veterans Corps packed into Pemberton Square just behind the State House, while the second, third, and fourth divisions waited on the Common. At about 9 a.m., the governor, lieutenant governor, and members of the executive council walked out of the State House toward the reviewing stand near the shrouded statue. They were joined by, as the papers put it, Mrs. Joseph Hooker Wood and Master Joseph Hooker Wood. They were the widow and son of Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Hooker Wood fighting Joe's nephew, who was himself a veteran of the Civil War. A few minutes later, the veterans of Hooker's Brigade, who had assembled at Pemberton Square, marched out and formed up in ranks on Beacon Street, facing the State House. At their head, the color-bearer carried the tattered battle flag of the 11th Pennsylvania Regiment. The unveiling ceremony was brief, by all accounts lasting only about 15 minutes. Lieutenant Governor Curtis Guild officially presented the statue to the governor, who officially accepted it and then it was unveiled, the crowd sang America, and the parade began. The lieutenant governor recalled the legislative process that led to the commissioning of the statue, the process of choosing a sculptor and a site, and then said, I have the honor to report to you the completion and erection of the statue on the site selected and prepared by our predecessors in accordance with the action of the general court. It is further my high privilege on the part of the committee in charge— now officially to transfer to you, the Chief Magistrate of the Commonwealth, this monument, erected by the people of Massachusetts in memory of the daring and devotion of the leader that Massachusetts gave to the armies of the Union, Major General Joseph Hooker. Governor John L. Bates's speech was brief and to the point. On behalf of the Commonwealth, I accept this monument, and thank you, sir, the committee, the artists, and all whose work has contributed to the perfection of this noble memorial. Joseph Hooker was a descendant of several generations of Massachusetts yeomanry. Here he was born, and here he spent his childhood and youth, but the breadth of the continent was not too vast a sphere for the activities of his manhood. Trained in the nation's school of the soldier, he was ready to serve her whenever and wherever the nation needed him. Early in the great contest for the perpetuity of the Union, he attained distinction and through merit advanced from command to command until he led a vast host, the army of the Potomac. Never in the rear, but always leading his troops, sharing their dangers, and beloved by them, always seeking the enemy, whether in the valley or on the mountain, beneath or above the clouds, self-reliant, resourceful, intrepid, impetuous, he was a fighter with his sword always drawn, a hero of battles, a soldier, and a patriot. To his memory and to the memory of the 146,730 brave, true, irresistible men whom this state sent forth to engage in that greatest of all conflicts of arms is this monument dedicated. Here, sitting in the saddle of bronze, may the commander ever direct the attention of the world to the fact that Massachusetts does not forget her defenders. And may he order to the front in all generations of our citizenship the best impulses, the noblest ideals, the highest traits of character. At the time, it was unusual that the formal speeches and unveiling took place before the parade commenced. For example, when the memorial to Robert Gould Shaw and the 54th Massachusetts Volunteers was unveiled across the street from the State House in 1897, a ceremony was held at Boston's Music Hall, then the parade marched to the statue site on Beacon Street. A June 25, 1903 wire service story picked up by the Las Vegas Daily Optic notes the program committee reversed the usual order of things and had the unveiling take place before the parade in order that everyone might have an opportunity of viewing the latter. The unveiling exercises were simple and occupied less than a quarter of an hour. The only addresses were the presentation speech made by the chairman of the statue committee and the speech of acceptance by Governor Bates. At the conclusion of these addresses, the mammoth statue, which up to this time had been enveloped with the stars and stripes, was exposed amidst cheers from thousands of throats. Another wire service story, this one carried in the Washington, D.C. Evening Star on June 26th, said, Master Joseph Hooker Wood, grand-nephew of General Hooker, pulled the cord which released the veil, and as the curtain fell, Battery A, stationed on the common, fired a major general salute of 13 guns. Master Joseph's age isn't given in the news coverage, but from the picture of him published in the program, I'd guess he was about 10 years old. The Globe noted, The little boy in the white duck sailor suit laughed in childish appreciation of the noise and enthusiasm which the act of his hand had evoked. The Las Vegas Optic tries to give a concise description of the statue for an audience that will likely never visit Boston and see it. The statue is the work of Daniel C. French. It is colossal measuring nearly 15 feet high, while the pedestal on which it stands is of nearly equal height. The horse stands with all four hoofs on the ground, its head pulled in, its tail pendant. The general is equally quiet. He wears the soft chapeau, sits with straight knees very erect, and holds his head a little back, as if observing the movement of troops at a distance. We'll include a photo of the general in the show notes. This particular picture was taken in 1863, and it shows him relaxed slouching slightly back in the saddle with his hat pushed up off his brows a bit. While this photo might not have been the exact model for the sculpture, it's clearly the same basic pose and posture that we see in bronze in Boston today. The article continues, describing the beginning of the parade. Immediately after the conclusion of the exercises, the booming of cannon announced that the parade had started. Along the line of march, thousands of spectators were thronged, and the various military organizations were loudly cheered. On the reviewing stand were the state and city officials, survivors of the Army of the Potomac, and a number of distinguished war veterans from various parts of the country. The dedication of the monument today was made the occasion of a splendid military pageant. 25,000 soldiers of the United States Army, National Guard of the State of Massachusetts, and sailors and marines from the Charlestown Navy Yard being in line and constituting the largest parade of armed men seen in Boston in a number of years. In addition to the regular military organizations, the parade included members of the Loyal Legion, the Society of the Army of the Potomac, whose annual reunion is in progress here, the Veterans of the Grand Army of the Republic, New England Association of Veterans of the Mexican War, Naval and Military Order Spanish-American War Veterans, Ancient and Honorable Artillery Company, Worcester Continentals, Sons of Veterans, and Society of California Pioneers, the presence of the latter organization being in recognition of General Hooker's work on the Pacific Coast before the Civil War. All these columns of current and former military men were following a route that was quite different from today's St. Patrick's Day Parade, or the Bunker Hill Day Parade, or even this month's Pride Parade. The Boston Globe outlined the route of the parade and the timetable it would follow. If the column starts promptly at 11, the announced hour, and the weather holds good, the head of the line will reach the entrance of Back Bay Station at 11.07. The corner of Dartmouth Street and Columbus Ave will be reached at 11.10, and at 11.15 the parade will turn into West Newton Street from Columbus Ave. Allowing that the men will take their time while going along the unpaved ground on West Newton Street, the head of the column will arrive at the corner of Tremont and West Newton Streets at 11.20. The Drinking Fountain at the junction of Tremont and Montgomery Streets, a short distance from Dover, will be reached at 11.40 and Filiot Street at noon. The corner of Tremont and Winter Streets at 12.15 and Washington and Winter Streets at 12.17. Church Green, near Lincoln, off Summer Street, will be reached at 12.20 and Pearl and High Streets five minutes later. Giving the Paraders plenty of time, without stops the head of the line ought to arrive at the reviewing stand in Post Office Square at 1225, the corner of Washington and Water Streets at 1227, City Hall at 1234, and the State House at 1240. We'll include a map of the parade route in this week's show notes, but here it is in a nutshell. It began in Park Square at the corner of Boylston and Charles, ran straight out Columbus Avenue to West Newton Street in the south end, it turned left on West Newton, left again onto Tremont, and then followed Tremont all the way back to Boston Common. The marchers then took a right to detour down Winter Street, made a big loop through the Financial District, and took School Street past Old City Hall and King's Chapel, continued onto Beacon Street, and ended up in front of the Hooker statue at the State House. Along with men marching, the Hooker Day Parade would feature antique battle flags from the Civil War that by 1903 were the next best thing to holy relics. The June 24th Boston Globe reports how some of these colors would be incorporated into the celebration. The committee has assurances from Colonel John L. Tiernan, ACUSA, commanding the Artillery District of Boston that General Hooker's old colors of the first artillery, of which regiment he was adjutant when the Mexican War began, will be carried in the procession by the 77th Company of Coast Artillery, 1st Lieutenant Richard H. Williams from Fort Warren, commanding. These flags have been in the museum at the Fortress Monroe and will be lent by the Secretary of War especially for this occasion. Colonel Tiernan will detail a special color guard to carry the flags. The parade made national news, as you can see from a wire service story that was picked up by the Washington DC Evening Star the day after the event. Scores of the most distinguished military men of America participated together with regular army, cavalry, and infantry Marines and Blue Jackets from the Coast Division of the North Atlantic Squadron sent here for the day, the state militia, veterans who served with Hooker, members of the Massachusetts Department of the Grand Army of the Republic, veterans of the Spanish-American War, and the Boston School Regiment. While it didn't make headlines nationwide like the parade did, there was an additional ceremony that night at Mechanics Hall on Huntington Ave. The evening program included music from the First Corps of Cadets Band, the grand army of the republic veterans chorus an oration from a general of the gar and an assembly of colors featuring the antique battle flags of various massachusetts units the june 26th boston post describes one more event that took place that evening as veterans sat watching a drummer during the post celebration at mechanics hall governor bates rose to speak at 7:20 the veterans applauded him heartily the governor said "'Veterans and friends, we have here this evening an old drum. It was beaten on Lookout Mountain. We have with us one who was a drummer boy in Hooker's Brigade. The old drummer boy will now beat the assembly on the old drum.'" Cheers and applause greeted this announcement. Front came the command, and a grizzled vet marched out to the front, accompanied by a younger man, a fife player. The sea of gray hairs and bald heads rose up and blood mounted to their cheeks and temples as the drum and fife played the old summons. Two old fellows sitting under the stage waved their chairs aloft, and the war fever had showed its fervid grip on all. It was a scene appealing to the calmest mind. The old and the young man walked off, but the vets called out for just one more rattle of that old drum. They applauded until the drummer came forward and played Yankee Doodle. This delighted the old fellows, and they stood up and tapped their feet. Reluctantly, they allowed the drummer boy to retire. As I prepared this episode, I was struck by the declining numbers of these old fellows. I did the research and writing for this episode during the week of the 75th anniversary of D-Day. While I was too young to pay much attention to the 40th anniversary, I very distinctly remember the 50th anniversary of D-Day, with many stories about the waning ranks of the veterans of that fateful day. My own grandfather, who was wounded during the landing at Utah Beach, had just passed away a few years before. And of course, during the anniversary this year, just a scant handful of D-Day veterans are still alive from any of the Allied armies, almost all of whom are nearly centenarians by now. For the Hooker Day Parade in 1903, there was already a growing sense of melancholy over this thinning of the ranks. I was struck by a paragraph from the June twenty-sixth Boston Post, which describes the aging and disabled veterans who came out to watch the parade. While their gritty comrades, refusing to be classified in the category of disabled veterans, held grimly on in the fatiguing march over the muddy pavements, refusing to be accounted for until the procession was finished, many limping, sad-eyed veterans watched them pass by from their shelter in windows, stands, or on the edge of the crowd. Unable to forego the old fascination of the music and the drum, these forgotten soldiers had donned their old uniforms. Eloquent as was their silence and inaction as their comrades of other days filed by, more touching by far was their reverent tribute to the colors they had followed long ago. Forbidden by age or other infirmities from taking their places with the men by whose side they had struggled for four long years, they stood singlier in groups, each raising his old felt hat in reverence to the stained and battle-scarred standards. From that passage, I couldn't help but see a parallel to the waning of another generation to which our nation owes so great a debt. To learn more about how Boston celebrated peace after the Civil War, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com 204. I'll have plenty of pictures of both the Peace Jubilee and Hooker Day, along with lots of primary source materials and additional reading related to both stories. And of course, I'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Richard Offrey's series on Syrian restaurants, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you want to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcast apps, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and many more. Stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History Podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History Podcast.
1: Sure. Playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history.
0: Apple Podcasts is still the most popular podcast app. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line, and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of thanks. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners.